question. If I were to ask you right this second to write down all of the subscriptions you pay for each month, would you be able to do it without missing one? It's more difficult than it sounds, especially with so many options and those sneaky free trials that you sometimes forget to cancel. What if I told you I had the perfect solution to help you with this exact problem? Why don't you try Rocket Money? With the help of Rocket Money, I was able to see each and every single subscription I pay for, even the ones I totally forgot I had. I'm sure you've been there too, but Rocket Money can help cancel it with just a few taps. Between streaming platforms, apps, delivery services, and even parenting and kids subscriptions, it's hard to keep track of exactly what you're spending and how much it all adds up to each month. Not to mention the fact that it seems every single day, one of those subscriptions suddenly jumps up in price. Rocket Money alerts you when this happens, so you're never caught unawares. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Take control over your finances and with the help of Rocket Money's easy-to-use dashboard, compare your monthly spending and make saving money easier than ever. They'll also try to negotiate lowering your bills up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll even deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of 500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash morning cup. That's rocketmoney.com slash morning cup. Rocketmoney.com slash morning cup. Have you ever come home from a long day just to find out that that meat you needed for your recipe has totally slipped your mind the last time you went to the grocery store? Well, with the help of ButcherBox, you might never have to deal with that problem ever again. With ButcherBox, you get the convenience of having high-quality meat and seafood delivered straight to your door. Not to mention the peace of mind you get to feel knowing that it's 100% grass-fed, free-range, and crate-free. All humanely raised with no antibiotics or added hormones. Let ButcherBox help make your life even easier. No grocery store required. In addition to free shipping on every order, you get to curate your box plans, have access to member-exclusive deals, get recipe ideas and inspiration, as well as helpful tips. You really can't go wrong with ButcherBox. Sign up for ButcherBox today by going to butcherbox.com slash morningcup and use the code morningcup at checkout and enjoy your choice of bone-in chicken thighs, top sirloins, or salmon in every box for an entire year. Plus, get $20 off. Again, that's butcherbox.com slash morningcup and use the code morningcup. There were two more murders 15 miles away. We have a weird described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird cup of murder. The disposal part of most true crime stories can, more often than not, be the most gruesome part of the tale. People will go to great lengths to make sure that the bodies of their victims are never found. On July 24, 1909, a man was born who would earn his moniker not by the way he killed, but by the way he chose to dispose of his victims' bodies. So, if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. John George Haig was born on July 24, 1909, in Stamford, Lincolnshire, and grew up in a village called Outwood, to deeply religious parents belonging to a religious sect known as the Plymouth Brethren. 
Bible stories were the only form of entertainment, the children were forbidden from participating in sports of any kind, and the world outside of the Haig family was viewed as an evil they had to avoid. John, as a result of his parents' belief, suffered from reoccurring religious nightmares. Despite this, he won a scholarship to Wakefield Cathedral and became a choir boy in the school. He became an apprentice at a firm of motor engineers and later took jobs in insurance and advertising. But by just 21 years old, the former choir boy was fired after he was suspected from stealing from the cash box. A few years later, he had a short-lived marriage and shortly thereafter was arrested and jailed for fraud. While in prison, his wife gave birth to a baby girl who she promptly put up for adoption and left the marriage. His conservative family disowned him for the whole debacle. By 1936, John was in London and became a chauffeur to a wealthy man named William McSwan. The two men grew very close, and even William's parents liked his new employee. When he left that job, he started a fraudulent solicitor's business and began swindling people out of money with fake stock shares from the estates of his deceased clients, all below market rates. He was discovered when he misspelled his own company name on the official letterhead and received a four-year prison sentence. He was released just after the start of the Second World War and continued to work as a fraudster, spending time in and out of prison. But as he soon realized, leaving his victims alive was what was earning him all of his arrests. If they weren't able to turn him in, he would leave with the money and never have to pay for his crimes. While in prison, he began to plan his next move. Became obsessed with the crimes of a man from 1925 who disposed of his victims in sulfuric acid. He began experimenting with field mice and found that it took just 30 minutes to properly dissolve a body. So, when he was freed from prison in 1943, he was ready. That's when, completely by chance, he ran into his old friend, William McSwan, who told John how he was working for his parents now, collecting the rents from their London properties. John wanted a lifestyle like his friend, and on September 6, 1944, prepared to take it for himself. That's the day that John clubbed William over the head after luring him to the basement in London, slit his throat, and drank some of his blood. He placed his body in a 40-gallon drum of acid, and two days later returned to find sludge where William's body once was. He poured what was left down a manhole. John then told William's worried parents that their son had gone to Scotland to avoid being called up for military service, and he would be taking over William's home and collect the rents for his parents. What a good friend. But as the war came to an end and William failed to return home, Donald and Amy McSwan grew suspicious. So, John simply lured them to the same basement on July 2nd, 1945, telling them that their son was back and wanted to surprise them. Once inside, he beat them over the head and disposed of them in their own drums of acid. He then stole William's pension checks, sold their properties, stole about 8,000 pounds, and moved into the Onslow Court Hotel in Kensington. He went back to his old scams and, for a while, was happy earning money through his lives. Then the McSwan money began to run out. So John simply went looking for another victim. And he found one in 52-year-old Dr. Archibald Henderson and his 41-year-old wife, Rose. The couple were selling their home and John posed as an interested buyer. 
Once inside, he struck up a friendship with the couple and Rose invited him to play the piano at their housewarming party. While inside, he stole Archibald's revolver and later told the man that he had an invention he wanted to show him in his basement. On February 12, 1948, the doctor came to John's home to see that invention and was shot with the stolen revolver. John then called Rose and said she needed to come quickly and that her husband had fallen ill. When she arrived, he shot her with her own husband's gun. Both bodies were dissolved, but this time, some pieces, like Archibald's foot, were left intact. John paid it no mind and dumped what was left in the corner of his yard. He began the lengthy task of making sure people thought the Hendersons were still alive, even forging letters to Rose's suspicious brother. He slowly sold their possessions and even gave his girlfriend some of Rose's clothing as a gift. When Rose's brother prepared to go to the police with his suspicions, John was able to convince him that the couple immigrated to South Africa so Rose could have an illegal abortion. Time went by, but soon, John found himself needing more cash flow. So he chose 69-year-old Olive Durand Deacon, who also lived in the Onslow Court Hotel. He had the residents convinced he was an engineer, so when Olive mentioned that she had an idea for artificial fingernails and wanted his input, he invited her to his basement workroom. When she entered the room on February 18, 1949, John shot her in the back of the neck, stripped her of her valuables, including a Persian lamb coat, and placed her in the acid bath. The next day, guests of the hotel grew anxious when Olive failed to come down for breakfast asking John if he knew where she was. He told them that they had planned a meeting, but she never showed up. Two days later, Olive was reported missing by a friend, who was driven to the station by John Haig. Once John's criminal record came to light, he became the number one suspect. They searched his workroom and found Olive's lamb coat along with 28 pounds of human fat, part of a human foot, gallstones, and part of a denture. He later confessed to killing Olive Durand Deacon, Archibald and Rose Henderson, and the McSwan family, as well as a young boy named Max, and a woman from Hammersmith, though these last three claims could never be substantiated. He was charged with murder, but pleaded insanity on the basis of drinking his victim's blood and the dreams he had had as a boy that resurfaced after a car accident in 1944. He was fairly confident that, with this insanity story and the fact that the bodies of the victims could not be found, there was no way he could be charged. It took the jury only minutes to find him guilty, and on August 10, 1949, he was led to the gallows and hanged to death. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on July 25th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or sharing it with your true crime-obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe. Thank you for listening to Morning Cup of Murder. This is a daily podcast that tells you what happened on this day in true crime history. In short, easy-to-listen-to episodes that you can finish on your commute or while you enjoy your morning coffee. So make sure you check back every morning. My name is Karina. I am the creator and host. You can find Morning Cup of Murder on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I have also set up a Patreon where you can donate a small monthly contribution to the podcast. 
All those links are in the episode description. Thank you again and have a wonderful day.